This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com, or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio, on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Michael Paternetti about his new book, The Telling Room. Then, PW Children's Reviews Editor John Sellers will chat with us about books linked to this summer's big movies. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And uh, we've got a new number one bestseller on the fiction list. It is The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. So last week we saw that at number 20, and we were a little surprised that it wasn't higher up, but Mm -hmm. apparently uh, word just needed to spread. This week it has sold 66,000 thousand copies impressive yeah so that's uh that's definitely enough to power it well past all of the other books on the list at the number two spot is dan brown's inferno which is still chugging along but with only twenty six thousand copies sold this week now only is (laughs) is a relative term here many authors would be delighted to sell twenty six thousand copies in a week um or or in a lifetime of a book it's so true (laughs) Uh, but after 11 weeks on the list that's still a pretty strong showing but uh since the news got out that Robert Galbraith is a pseudonym for J.K. Rowling. Um, that that book has really skyrocketed, and uh, as as a reminder, PW is one of the few places that reviewed it before anybody knew who Robert Galbraith was. We gave it a starred review um, and uh, said that it's uh, got a complex and compelling sleuth and an equally well formed and unlikely assistant who are confronted with a baffling crime. Um, so it's definitely one to pick up if you're a thriller fan, even if you have no idea who J.K. K. Rowling is or why you should care. We also have a couple of uh, new titles on the list this week. At number eight is Light of the World by James Lee Burke. Uh, We also gave this a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It's the 20th novel featuring Dave Robichaud, uh, and it's a powerful meditation on the nature of evil. Uh, He's a Louisiana sheriff's detective, but in this book, he's on vacation in Montana with family and friends, so he gets out of his usual milieu. And uh, we say this book could easily have been subtitled, Daddies, Don't Bring Your Daughters to Montana as people get tortured, disfigured, and eviscerated. So that's a, that's a gory mystery thriller for you. Um, but even as the stomach roils, the fingers keep turning the pages. Uh, he is a, a master storyteller. And is that typical James Lee Burke? I've never read him. I haven't either, um, but I I suspect it is. This isn't something that you kind of whip out of nowhere and just drop on your readers in book 20 in a series. Sure. So I, I, I suspect that the rest of them are likewise pretty strong right. stuff, but there's definitely a market for that. Um, and, you know, if if you like the sort of thing, it's the sort of thing you like is, sure. is pretty much my feeling about that. And finally, at number 10, uh, we have Philippa Gregory's The 
White Princess. Um, this is a, a long-running series. It's the fifth book of uh, about the House of Tudor. So these uh, in 1400s England uh, royal families and dynasties and infighting and backstabbing, both metaphorical and literal. Um, and in this case, uh, the focus is on uh, Elizabeth of York, uh, who is the sister to the princes who were imprisoned in the tower, the mother of Henry VIII, and the grandmother of Elizabeth I. Uh, and so it was about her being torn um, between Richard III and uh, his triumphant challenger, Henry VII. So this, uh, for those who are students of history uh, or who just love the sort of dramatic, uh, really, again, very bloody side of things, um, we'll, uh, we'll want to pick this one up. And you know, Gregory has been writing historical fiction for a long, long time. Her research is very good. Um, her writing is very good. And uh, you know, it's, it's really an, an interesting take on familiar history that helps these people really come to life in a very dramatic way. Well, it sounds like a fun fiction list this week. Yeah, uh, well, you know, fun. <laughs> Depending on your definition of fun, it's not all you know balloons and birthday cake. But uh, it, again, if if you like this sort of thing, there's there's a lot for you to like, um, as long as you don't mind it being you know, people doing terrible things to one another. <laughs> right. Well, fun for us in that we have many more to talk about than we sometimes do. It's true on the list. How about nonfiction? Well, you know, I want to talk a little bit about media uh, influence on uh, on books, expected or unexpected. Um, and, and last week we talked about The Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth by Reza uh, Aslan. He's the uh, author of uh, critically acclaimed No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam. Uh, he, he was already on our list, list at number seven last week, but he ended up getting a big bump from a interview on Fox and it was horrible. I mean, I, I've, ne- I, I mean, I've never seen this kind of interviewer on, on TV, uh, this kind of interview, I, I should say, on TV. I mean, to clarify, it was embarrassing for the interviewer. I thought the author yes. carried himself perfectly well. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that she brought to him, every uh, accusation that she leveled against him, he just, he just knocked it down. Uh, and he came off as really knowing what he was talking about and being very dedicated to history specifically. Um, so. Yeah, well, this one and and she the, the uh, uh, reporter was was really didn't want to move much beyond the fact that he is um, uh, a Muslim who's writing about Jesus Christ. And of her six or seven questions, she refused to to kind of veer off that road and just stuck with these these inane questions. And you're right, he handled himself really well. But the thing about it is that Fox News helped sell this book, bump it up from seven to number three. So, uh, so I'm sure we'll be seeing that on the list again next week and probably in those, those top numbers because it seems to have gotten the attention, uh, the public's attention. Now, now here's another book. Uh, this is called The Melt Method, M-E-L-T Method, a breakthrough self-treatment system to eliminate chronic pain, erase, uh, erase the signs of aging, and feel fantastic in just 10 minutes a day. It's an exercise book uh, that, that one you uses with like a, a, a roll, uh, like a foam roll to, to help get rid of chronic pain that this author believes a lot of our chronic pain is, is the tissues that bind the muscles in the fascia. And 
this book came out in January and did well. But just uh, two weeks ago, Doctor Oz had it uh, you know, referred to it on his show, and it made you know this put it on the bestseller list at number nineteen. So just another uh, example of how media will just uh, uh, something newsworthy or someone who's you know who gets behind a book will just make a book sell. Uh, so that was one book. And then just going down the list, we've got one called The Sky, The Art of Final Fantasy. Uh, this is by Yoshitaka Amano. And this is uh, really, it's a um, list price $80 book. It's a three-book set of of art, of fantasy art by this Japanese artist. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising to me at number 11, uh, it, it discounted, it looks like it discounted down to $56. Um uh, is is uh, this is something that was previously available only as part of a now sold out the sky it was a box set, and uh, these are ethereal illustrations for the first ten Final Fantasy games, so based on games. But it, it's it's kind of interesting that this book made it on the list and and as high up as number eleven. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I I know a lot of people who are into the Final Fantasy games or have been over the years, but they generally don't talk about the art very much. You know, that's that's not really like the big draw. It's more about the gameplay. Sure. Yeah, and and here is a book just about the art, and with its list price, it's still selling pretty high. Uh, at number fourteen, uh, we have uh, Shirley Jones, a memoir by the actress Shirley Jones, who's known for uh, her films, her role in films, Oklahoma Carousel, and The Music Man, and was uh, is probably best known uh, amongst a certain generation for her role as the mother in the Partridge family. Uh, and this book, she's she was always kind of uh, portrayed herself or, or was portrayed as a straight-laced uh, person. And uh, in this memoir, she reveals uh, her background, um, I, I think the abuse said various, uh, with various husbands, uh, her relationship with a troubled actor, Jack Cassidy. And so she really just kind of breaks the mold, you know, breaks the, 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 the perception and says, this is what it was like for me, you know, growing up uh, uh, as a young actress, as even a uh, studied actress. So, and, and this one lands at number 14. And finally, at number eight, we have the Grumpy Cat book. And this was the <laughs> meme from last year. Grumpy Cat made appearance both last and this year at BEA and... It's at number eight, and people are can't get enough of this grumpy cat. And they say he is, he is adorable. He is adorable. This adorable is true. Adorable cat. Um, but is it just a book of photographs? Is it? I mean, are they? Are they? Do they have funny captions? Funny captions. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, funny captions. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and this is you know paperback at twelve ninety five. So this kind of a good gift book for yeah. your cat lover friends. Absolutely. And that's about it in nonfiction. All right. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see where things go next week. We're definitely getting into the, the summer slump at the moment. Right. Um, but uh, things will start picking up again in September when all the publishers release their big fall titles. So uh, it'll, I, I always want to take a look at how the numbers go. But I think I feel like this time of year, it's very easy for a book to hit the bestseller list or easier than it might be at other times. There's, there's not terribly stiff competition. Right. Yeah. And you're right. We will see come uh, one more month. Yeah. Big butt's hitting. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Michael Paternitti will tell us about a quest for cheese that took him all the way to Spain. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Michael Paternitti on the line. He's the author of The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me, Mark. So the seed for your book, as you mentioned in your introduction, was planted years ago while you were a graduate student, I believe an MFA, working at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Can you tell us how the story came to you back then? Um, yeah, I was um, I was working as a proofreader for the deli. I was in grad school at the University of Michigan, um, studying uh, for my MFA in fiction, and I um, loved that deli. It was just this incredible place. It was like a foodie, um, you know, bonanza. The one of the owners, R. A. Weinswag would travel the world and find um, the finest foods uh, and and their stories and bring them back to the deli. And I went in there and uh, they offered me this proofreading job. Um, and I was I was asked to proofread his newsletter, um, telling of these products and these tales of his travels. And uh, there was a Spanish celebration month, and I proofread this little entry about this cheese that Ari had found in Spain, uh, up in, in the north-central part of Spain in Castile, in a tiny village, and it was made by a cheesemaker by the name of Ambrosio, which seemed impossible. That, that alone seemed like its own fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But this, this guy um, had sheep that he milked, and he would take the milk to a little stable across from the house where he lived, um, and he would make this cheese and then take it up to the family cave and age it for a year. And after afterwards, then he would drench it in olive oil. And it was sold in this really sort of idiosyncratic white tin. And um, and at the time, it had won uh, some, some medals and different agricultural fairs and cheese shows. And Ari, I remember he wrote um, that it was a cheese that was intense, dense, and sublime. And it was the most expensive cheese that Zingerman's had ever sold. And so I, I ripped this little entry out when the final newsletter appeared because I just thought it was so intriguing. And I put it away uh, in a file. And then, um, yeah, and then flash forward, you know, almost 10 years later, I was on assignment as a magazine writer uh, going to profile the great chef Ferran Adria, whose sure. um, restaurant El Bouilly was basically changing face of cuisine and uh, I had a down Sunday and I went up to this little village called Guzman and uh, I went to see if I could try some of this cheese and see if I could meet this cheesemaker Ambrosio and what I found there was um, that he had actually stopped making the cheese and, and he claimed it had been stolen from him and uh, he was plotting to murder his best friend, who he claimed had stolen it. Wow. That, wow. That is just, that is, that is dense and, and rich like the cheese. That's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those moments. I, I met him, uh, it was an August Sunday in the year 2000. And in this little village on the north 
part of town, there's a hill, and into the hill are, are dug these caves uh, that date back to Roman times in Spain. And the caves were used to store food back in the day. But over time, they built these little rooms above the caves uh, that were called um, telling rooms. And they built little fireplaces in there, and, and uh, there was usually a table and uh, some benches to be found. And people of the village uh, would gather there all these years later to eat and tell stories and drink their homemade wine from these uh, vessels called parones, which are just like decanters with spouts on them, and they would hold them up in the air and the wine arcs up into uh, your mouth unless you unless you drizzle it all over your shirt, which I, I did quite a bit of um, during my time there. <laughs> but um, but it, it was in this telling room that Ambrosio told this story over eight hours on that Sunday. And literally when I walked out at two in the morning, I remember it felt as if my, um, like my head had just completely exploded. So um, you eventually ended up moving to that town with, with your family. So what, what inspired you to get that, that personally close to uh, this town and the story and these people? Well, I, you know, at, at first when I went up there, it was more, I, in, in some weird way, it was like the way we create pilgrimages. Uh, I was just interested in seeing the place, and, and I didn't expect um, to meet a storyteller of the likes of Ambrosio. I mean, I, in my work, I, I traveled around quite a bit, but I had never met somebody who could, um, unspool a story like this guy could. He was like 260 pounds of hulking, you know, Falstaffian belly. He was like the, you know, he's like Mardi Gras, everything about him. He was joyous and body and, um, melancholy and, uh, emotional and he just he just had this this force that was undeniable, and I think um, I started to I started to concoct ways to return. Um, you know, I'd find another assignment in Spain or somewhere and stop in in, in the village for a few days um, just to find out at first if really it felt true because the whole thing did feel like a a bit of a dream or a fairy tale. Um, but yes, finally, over time, um, I wrote a book proposal, and after 2002, in the year 2003, we moved as a as a family um, to Spain for about seven or eight months, and and lived part of those months up in the village. And how did that go? I mean, with your kids, with your wife, how how active were they in your if they were a part of your research at all, or or uh, did they just let you go and uh, try all these cheeses or this one cheese? <laughs> they were they were an integral part of all of it. I think one of the the things that was most enticing about this place was that it was a little village, as I say, with you know like eighty people, um, and many of them were old. And Ambrosio was preaching this old way of living, um, and it, his story was this like slow food tale gone completely awry. But he was living this slow way, and he was taking time um, to make his food, and he was taking time to tell these stories. And um, meanwhile, in my life, it was just as it is in most American lives: um, deadlines and. 
uh, this speed that you were always trying to slow things down so that you could find time for your family and find time for the things that, that matter, that keep you connected. Um, and so every time we went to this place, it was like stepping back or out of time. And in this place, we began to make sort of new memories as a family. We were able to um, spend like delicious amounts of time together. And uh, the children were, we had two children at the time. We had a, we had a third afterward, but um, they were young. They were three and, and one in that summer. And, um, and so, yeah, I just, we had these very fantastic adventures um, like we climbed in the caves one day, my son and I, and um, we celebrated our daughter's birthday out in the fields with this big, you know, vanilla cake that the bakers in, in the village uh, brought out. And, and I remember our daughter basically sort of just face planting into the cake and just beginning to eat. Um, so, and Ambrosio was right there with us for all of this, and just really took us in as part of his own family. Um, and then in the years after, when I would go back to report, um, you know, I would have these memories of our kids and our family there. So in some ways too, our family was frozen in time there and those memories were alive and those ghosts were as alive as all the other ghosts in the village for me. Now you talk about love and betrayal in in the subtitle and in the book and revenge and how much a part of all this did you become or were you merely a witness and um, uh, tell us about that. That's a good question. At at first I was, I saw myself as a witness. I saw myself as somebody there to record the legend of Ambrosio Molinos, the cheesemaker of Guzman. And he told this incredible story. Um, His cheese had started in a stable, but had gone on to um, be eaten by uh, the royal family of Spain and England. It was served to uh, Ronald Reagan and Frank Sinatra. And Fidel Castro loved this cheese so much he tried to buy all of it from Ambrosio. Um, And as the business got bigger... The demand became greater, and they had to. Ambrosio realized he had to move into a bigger facility, so he was trying to find a little factory that would work. And there was one across the fields in, in, a, in a nearby village. And he claimed that his best friend and blood brother, who he sort of had brought in to help him with the business side of things, because after all, Ambrosio was really just a farmer. Um, he claimed that this best friend of his, named Julian, put a contract in front of him that he signed without reading uh, and and by so signing he signed away his rights to the cheese and um, and so lost it and when he realized this later of course uh, he decided he was going to get revenge by um, by trying to kill Julian <laughs> he had a very specific murder plot and uh, and he laid that out you know very vividly um, so the, the the love part of it, of course, starts with Ambrosio's love uh, for this cheese, this old family recipe that he resurrected. And, in, in, and into this cheese, he, he would say literally, um, you know, that he would pour his love. He would pour all of this philosophy, all of this history, and, and try to create this, the taste of the land there through this cheese. Um, and then I think with the betrayal, um, you have... Of course, the betrayal of the alleged betrayal of Julian of um, Ambrosio, 
And, uh, and then as, as I got deeper into it, of course, I became implicated in all of this. And um, eventually it became a bit of a narrative battle between myself and Ambrosio for who was going to control the real story of the book. And coming from a writing perspective, I mean, how long did it take you to write this book? And how did you end up deciding what stories to keep and, and, and how to put this book together? Um, did it go through different, different incarnations? Um, how did all that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It was, um, it was. It took ten years, really, to report and write the book, mm-hmm. which is a which is a long time in book you know in book years even. And uh, I was working a magazine, my magazine job. But um, but what I found with the book was I, I thought I was pretty certain at first that this was in fact going to be the legend of this cheesemaker and the story of his cheese. And I wasn't sure how it was going to end, of course, because there was a sort of active murder plot slash mm. violent fantasy that was playing out. But um, but I also began to realize as I became more and more implicated in the town, the more I felt this affinity with Ambrosio, this kinship, this friendship, um, that I didn't somewhere inside of me want to do what I, I would have done on any other story as a reporter, which was I would have gone and heard the other side of this story. I didn't want to know the other side of the story. And so I sort of invented ways to drag my feet. Um, and some of those ways were fantastic, you know, drinking homemade red wine in someone's telling room and listening to, to stories is a great way to pass time. It just, that time turned into a couple of years. And then finally, I think it was my wife who really, um, gave me a little kick and said, Hey, if you're really a reporter, don't you think it's time maybe to go over and, and talk to Julian? Um, and so I think that that became a catalyst for trying to figure out uh, maybe that this book was going to be my story in the end. And I needed to, to rest it uh, out of Ambrosio's hands, but the force and power with which he told that story really cast a spell over me for, I, I, you know, at least five, five years, maybe six years. Sure, sure. So did you ever end up talking with Julian, or, or did you just dodge that forever? No, I, I went to Ambrosio, and I said this would have um, been much later. This would have been maybe seven or eight years into to us knowing each other. Um, I went to him, and I said, in order for me to really do this book, I need to talk to Julian and I, I need to be, um, honest with you about that. I'm not going to go behind your back. And, um, and Ambrosio had just, his father had just passed away and he was very, on this day, he was very, um, emotional and he was going through some photographs of his father and he had the, the photo album on his lap and he kind of he kind of closed the photo album and he said, okay, all right, today, today we're going to do it. Um, and he said, just follow me. And I followed him. We got in the car and Ambrosio started driving at sort of this breakneck speed through the Spanish countryside into this, uh, into this village called Aranda de Duero, which is, um, probably half an hour from, uh, Guzman. Mm-hmm. And he, and he knew Julian so well, he knew Julian's exact schedule always. And, uh, so he took me straight to the courthouse and of course I'm riding in this car. It's, 
Um, he's driving like a madman. And there was some part of me that was really wondering what this was all about. Like, did he have um, a weapon? Were we about to were we about to settle this whole thing? And was it all going to get settled before my eyes, or was he really sort of um, chauffeuring me to to this showdown that I was going to have with Julian? Um, what I realized in retrospect was I think it was the moment where Ambrosio realized he was about to lose control of the narrative. And um, in a weird way, he was chaperoning me because we went to Julian's office. Um, I rang the bell. Ambrosio sat across at a bar waiting for me. And when I introduced myself to Julian up in his law office, uh, Julian had one of those looks in his face when I said the name Ambrosio, like he thought maybe I'd come to do the killing um, wow. And I sort of assured him immediately, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to do anything on Ambrosio's behalf. I just, I need to hear you tell your story. And, um, and he was really, he was like very pale and uh, a little bit uncertain. And he said, I will tell you my story, but um, I can't do it right now. I would like to meet you in Madrid in two months. And I said, well, Okay, that sounds fine. And I then flew back and and um, began this conversation with Julian, which of course presented a very different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that you keep saying the alleged betrayal. So clearly, there there is another perspective going on, um, and it's it is significant. I hadn't realized he was a lawyer. So when you say that he, you know, Ambrosio says he put this contract down and I just signed it. Um, that's uh, there's a whole different spin on that. If that contract is coming from someone who does contracts for a living, yes, exactly. And I think one of the one of the things that went on here was that um, not only was I in my own little narrative battle with Ambrosio, but um, but Ambrosio was in a narrative war with Julian, and um, it became part of the legend of this cheese that. Um, that its maker had been betrayed. And so it had this very sort of Shakespearean plot line. Um, and one thing I do remember Julian saying was, um, you need to think about that story. Of course, of course, in Ambrosio's story, there's a betrayer. Um, because if there's not a betrayer, then what's left is Ambrosio and the mistakes that he made and, and how he took this magical cheese and it was really considered that many people thought when they ate it that they were tasting um, sort of their own past because these cheeses were made uh, way back when 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 mothers made cheeses and kitchens and Castile and served them to their to their children and so people really when they tasted this cheese they went back to their mother's kitchens and sort of thought of it as a magical thing. Um, but Julian Julian pointed out um, as as any good lawyer might uh, that. Ambrosio needed to cling to this narrative because this is this was his um, solution and salvation for some of his own behavior. Now, your first book was a New York Times bestseller called Driving Mr. Albert, about driving Einstein's brain across the country. And I remember when this galley came into Publishers Weekly uh, those years ago. Were there any similarities in these two journeys for you? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, you know, there's... Of course, they're these slightly inscrutable men at the center of these narratives. Um, they're they're both uh, quests of a sort. Um, there's so much forward momentum in the first book. You know, a road trip is episodic 
And um, I was trying to create a certain amount of velocity with that book. It was a shorter book. It was um, powered by uh, this pilgrimage we made with the brain to return it to the Einstein family. Um, so there was a question that hovered over the book about whether or not we were going to accomplish that. Um, but there's still a way for everything to reflect and refract through this brain. Um, everything in America was reflecting and refracting, and that became really interesting to me. And I think in this book, Ambrosia was telling this story about Castile, where, where in the first book, this Dr. Harvey, who had, who had taken Einstein's brain, or stolen it, um, was completely sort of silent and inscrutable. Ambrosio spoke more words than any other person I'd ever spent time with. I mean, he told stories better than anyone I knew. And, um, and there's something all encompassing about that time with him. But I, in the end, I think there was a little, a bit of, um, of, uh, a resonance and, and this interest of mine and storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves and the legends we create in order to kind of get up in the morning and, and do what we do. I mean, we all have created some self mythology uh, about ourselves. And I think that became very interesting as I went forward with Ambrosio trying to figure out exactly who this man was. Um, and by the same token, I was really trying to, to find out who this Dr. Harvey was in the first book. So in the end, um, I guess my question is how does how does the cheese hold up? Did you uh, did you ever get to taste it? I had. I should tell you there was of this cheese of the original cheese that Ambrosio made. He had one tin left that he kept in the cave underneath the telling room, and he had said he was going to save it there forever, um, mm-hmm. as sort of to, to memorialize this cheese. Uh, at the end of our summer there, our family summer, um, we had this moment up at the telling room, um, eating, having this merienda, um, this meal sort of in the late afternoon, where he surprised us by by uh, going down into the cave, bringing this cheese up and opening the tin. Um, and he put it over a flame to um, heat it. That's how he, he liked to serve it. It's a very, it is a very hard sort of manchego like cheese, and he um, it, he let it sort of uh, um, boil there in its own olive oil for a while mm-hmm. uh, until it was sweating, and then he then he served us this last piece of Paramo de Guzman um, so that we might taste the memory of it and taste the land as it once tasted, and um, to remind ourselves what purity really was. I think that's those were the reasons. Mm-hmm. And and was it that magical experience? Well, well, for me, I you know I I I lack all objectivity. And that moment, <laughs> I mean, the cheese was so powerful. It was so strong. He is. It it was a cheese that only Ambrosio could make. It was so completely overwhelming. Um, most people can barely eat one piece of it. Really, truly. I mean, you can't. Mm-hmm. I, I I tried to eat two, and I was really too much. It was so rich. Um, but it had this sort of sweet, nutty quality. And, um, and then as it melts in one's mouth or as it melted in mine, um, you could taste the, some of the herbs, some of the, the chamomile and, uh, the sage, a little tiny bit of time. And, uh, then there was, yeah, this very nutty 
um, undertone, but it was, it, it was so rich and so strong that, um, that, yeah, it was, it was as if really, truly, um, I had been, uh, I was like tasting ambrosio and I think he saw it that way. Like this was a part of him. This was, this was, um, not only just his legacy, but it was a taste of, of him. We've been talking with Michael Paternetti. You can find his book, The Telling Room Stores, right now. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is going to take us through the summer's blockbuster movies and their associated books, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers has the lowdown on books tied to summer movies. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you guys doing? Very well. Um, so what have you got for us? It sounds like it's, uh, it's, it's all transmedia up in here. Um, we've got uh, movie books and books about movies and... What, what's the deal? Well, you know, so I was looking uh, at Nielsen uh, Bookscan and some of their numbers uh, for, you know, sort of what's selling right now, especially on the young adult and middle grade side. And I just kept noticing that, like, just, just so many of the titles were tied to, to films, not all films that are necessarily out this summer, but in the coming weeks, the coming months, and in the coming year, title after title, you know, had something in the works. So I thought I'd run through some of those with you guys. There's a few that are opening uh, very soon. Um, for a slightly younger crowd, for the middle grade readers, there's um, the second Percy Jackson film, which is called Sea of Monsters. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to be out in early August. The series has done really well for middle grade readers, and the, the first Percy Jackson film, uh, which came out in 2010, uh, The Lightning Thief, uh, grossed more than $220 million, uh, worldwide, according to boxofficemojo.com. On the YA side, there's uh, Divergent by Veronica Roth. Um, that's a, a YA series, a trilogy uh, set in a futuristic Chicago. Um, that film is not uh, actually set to come out uh, until 20, uh, early 2014, but the, the third and final book in the trilogy, Allegiant, uh, comes out in October. So there's definitely some uh, excitement built up around that. One thing I should mention, too, is that many of the titles that I'm you know, talking about here have been on the bestseller lists for some time. So it's not just that movie interest is, is driving the sales, but sure. I think um, you know, any publisher will sure. tell you that having a movie just makes a huge impact on, on book sales. Uh, so one of the other interesting things that I found is there's actually one actress who is appearing in several of the sort of YA-based uh, films that are coming out. In the, in the next few months. Um, her name is uh, Shailene Woodley, and uh, she's starring in the D- Divergent film as Tris Pryor, but she's also starring in a, in a movie that comes out just in a few days, I think. Um, a, a much smaller film, but it's based on a book called The Spectacular Now uh, by Tim Tharp. That hmm. was a novel that was a National Book Award finalist when it came out a few years ago, and apparently the film was uh, very well received at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, so that's definitely one I'm looking forward to, to checking out. When you say that it's smaller, does that just mean you know it's not coming out for a major studio? It's not opening in as many cities. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's just a smaller smaller budget uh, film compared to Allegiant, which is just a, a really big production. Um, and then the same actress, Shailene uh, uh, Woodley, is also starring in, um, I guess, a, a project maybe straddles the line between small small and big in that it's it's uh, based on John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, which was absolutely huge from a book standpoint. The film itself, I think. Is 
is actually going to be comparatively low budget, but she's going to be starring in that as well as uh, Hazel Grace Lancaster, who uh, has terminal cancer. And that movie is also scheduled to come out early next year. Wow, so she's she's really uh, making the rounds. She is. Well, you know, I think there have been a few, some comparisons uh, with, uh, you know, uh, certainly with Divergent to uh, the Hunger Games film. And, and speaking of the second book in, um, or the second film, rather, in the Hunger Games uh, franchise, Catching Fire, uh, which is, of course, based on Suzanne Collins' best-selling dystopian trilogy, uh, is also due out uh, later this year. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the trailer just hit up um, you know the other day, but um, domestically alone, the first Hunger Games film made more than uh, four hundred million, and it made a great deal more internationally. So, you know that that Catching Fire is certainly going to be a huge deal on the movie side, and you know certainly the sales of the books you know continue to be strong. You know years after they've all been published. Yeah. And so I'm sure you've been seeing you know we see bumps whenever the movie comes out um and and how like for instance for a movie for Hunger Games how how much has that affected the book sales I th- I mean to be honest I think with a with something like uh, with the Hunger Games in particular the sales are really strong you know somewhat permanently and the same thing with um um, Percy Jackson, for instance, but there are others where I think that um, you know certainly with the spectac- spectacular now, you know that that did make the Nielsen list. It was it was farther down. It was not you know in the top twenty or anything like that. Right. But I, that, I think that's a film where you could almost certainly attribute it to interest around the new film. Um, not it was you know like I said it was, it was certainly an acclaimed book when it came out a few years back, but it was also a somewhat quiet one. And I think you know the movie is I'm sure driving uh, a good portion of those sales. Um, and you know there's several other ones, and I, I know we don't necessarily have time to talk about all of them, but we've got uh, the City of Bones, which is coming out also in August. Um, that's based on the first book in a paranormal series by Cassandra Clare. Um, and as I sort of you know dove deeper into it and into the bestsellers, I you know I kept finding more and more movie deals all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are there are ones you know uh, in the works for uh, Lois Lowry's uh, Newberry winning The Giver, um, a book called Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, uh, Wonder by R.J. Palacio, uh, Marcus Zusak's The Book Thief, which I believe comes out later this year, uh, James Dashner's The Maze Runner, which is coming out next year. So I mean, you can just see that like the young adult and middle grade book world is just a really huge source of material for films that uh, the studios seem to really be mining to find uh, find properties. I think it's really interesting. The, um, you cited the Fault in Our Stars particularly, which is not in any way a fantastical book. Like you know, you get you get the Percy Jackson books, and there's there's plenty of opportunities for big CGI. Uh, you know, there's there's gods and magic and so forth. And I think I feel like it's less usual to see um, something that's just a you know straight modern day drama uh, really move from the the YA book world or the middle grade book world to the big screen those seem to be less cinematic i think that's you know i think that's true i think some of these uh you know other these concepts for these books are so sexy and so cinematic that they seem like a natural so i think with john green and, and the faults in our stars it was just the fact that that book hit so broadly you know and was so widely acclaimed both among teens and frankly adult readership mm-hmm. that it, it seemed like you know and he has such a sort of following that it seemed like a natural um the, the tim tharp spectacular now is also very much a sort of quiet modern um contemporary realistic uh, type film and one that i uh, that came out fairly recently would would be um perks of being a wallflower 
which right. would also I think fit in right. that category. And I think it did fairly well. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but you know, I think was pretty was pretty well received at, for being a sort of more quiet, realistic, everyday sort of story. Yeah, no, I, I definitely saw a lot of people talking about that. Though again, it helps that I guess the same actors are kind of moving from film to film to film. Yeah, well, I suppose just like these, uh, just like the authors have the built-in fan base, uh, certain <laughs> actors do too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely. All right, well, John, thank you so much for that roundup. We appreciate it. It's always great to have you on the show. Absolutely, anytime. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your questions on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 